the best leaders are able to be wrong in public. Because you have two choices if you're not able to be wrong in public. You can either never be wrong or you can never be in public. And most leaders I know are desperately afraid of being wrong in public. And so this particular climate will penalize you for being wrong in public so people won't admit it. And we choose for ourselves leaders who are desperate to be able to try and convince us that it wasn't their fault. Welcome to Rise and Lead. I'm Benjamin Lundquist, and this podcast is all about personal growth and leadership. I am honored that you're here. Half of the battle is showing up, and you are a leader who shows up, and you showed up today because you want to grow and impact more people. Let's keep learning and let's keep growing. In this episode, I sit down for an amazing conversation with Scott. Cormode. Scott received his PhD from Yale University and is the Hugh Dupree Professor of Leadership and Development at the Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He is also a senior fellow at the Max Dupree Center for Leadership and the Fuller Youth Institute. Scott also founded the Academy of Religious Leadership and the Journal of Religious Leadership. On this episode, Scott and I talk about his new book, The Innovative Church, the heart of leadership and what it is, how a leader can get people to think differently, the value of listening, what leadership approaches matter most in 2020, and so much more. Whether you are a church leader, corporate leader, community leader, or you're leading in your own family, this episode is packed with excellent value to help you lead better right now. The Rise and Lead podcast is designed specifically to motivate and equip you to live your greatest life with maximum impact. We are going to find out what makes great leaders great and how you can start growing yourself, rise, expanding your impact, lead, and living the life you have been created to live. I want to personally invite you to be a Rise and Lead partner in spreading the word about this podcast and all the episodes that will follow so together we can reach more people. Honestly, your support is the power behind the Rise and Lead podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can get all the episodes that drop every month. Rate the podcast. I am always going for a five-star rating. If you think that Rise and Lead deserves five stars, I would greatly appreciate that. Leave a written review about how the podcast has added real value to your life. Your reviews, they make a huge difference. And finally, share about Rise and Lead with your family, friends, and your your social media network, screenshot this episode with Scott and send it to someone. You are helping someone else rise to their next level by connecting them to an episode. When you share about the podcast as an Instagram story, make sure you tag me and I will always give you a repost. 
I love that our Rising League community is growing and you are a part of this community. Right now, Rising Lead is being downloaded in close to 90 countries around the world. I like to start with prayers, so let's pray together. God, as we look to lead better, let us look inside first to the areas of weakness where we need growth. Keep us humble to learn and confident in who we are and what you have called us to do. Amen. Let's jump straight into my conversation with Scott Cormode. Scott, thank you so much for being on the Rising Lead podcast. And as we get going today, for those people that don't know you, share about your journey and how did you grow in your voice for leadership and your passion for developing leaders? Sure. I'm the professor at Fuller Seminary. I teach leadership development. And I started out as a student at Fuller Seminary, low these many years ago. I was planning to be a minister. And I had a professor who wrote on one of my papers, you should think about being a professor. So we started talking about it. I talked to another professor. I, there's a little table that's here in Pasadena on our campus. And I think about it, that conversation, every time I walk back that, by that table, he laid out for me what graduate school would look like. I ended up going to Yale University to do a PhD in church history. But I was always interested in leadership. And one day I'm walking down the street at Yale and I see something that says program on nonprofit organizations. And so I walked in and I turned to the receptionist and I said, I know half of all nonprofit activities religious. Do you guys have anything on religion? And there was a guy at a filing cabinet behind her. It was back to me. He turns around, he does a little hop and he goes running into his office. He comes out waving a piece of paper and he said, we just got three quarters of a million dollars to study religion and we don't know anything about religion. So they hired me that week to be a research assistant. By the end of the week, they had said, or by the end of the year, they had said, you're no longer a research assistant. We've got 21 professors working on this project and you. And I just had to do everything the professors did. And I spent six years while I was doing my PhD working with the program on nonprofit organizations. The things that fascinated me were the questions that I got to ask there. How do people change? What prevents people from changing? How does change propagate through a system? All the kinds of things that I am deeply interested in now, that's what got me doing what I do today. And when you think about some of that early learning there at Yale, what were some of those key learnings way back in the day that you will never forget when you begin to think about how do organizations create change? Well, the ones that go way back are start with the leader themselves. Oftentimes, we spend a lot of time trying to get people to figure out how to get leaders to change. When in fact, the most reliable, the best research actually shows that most leaders will conspire to prevent their own change through a process that Chris Argerus calls defensive reasoning. What they'll do is they'll say, I know somebody else who needs to learn that lesson. Or they'll say, you know, it's not my fault. And over and over again, we have reasons why we don't have to learn. And so embracing our own weakness, it's very consistent with what's ha- what happens in 2 Corinthians 4. The idea that God works through our weakness. We get so caught up in our strengths, we forget our weaknesses. The best way to get a plateaued leader to move to the next level is to work on their weaknesses. How do you coach leaders into acknowledging that they have weaknesses, identifying those, and how do you get them to 
really see those as potential growth areas and begin to move them forward. Because I think you're totally right. It's, it seems like so many leaders, it's really easier to pass the buck than work on a weakness area of themselves. So how do you first help a leader become aware of those weaknesses and then coach them forward? It starts with our mental model of leadership. So I'm going to say two things about how I understand my mental model of leadership and how they've been shaped biblically. Number one is I would argue that Christian leaders do not have followers. Jesus has followers. Christian leaders instead have people entrusted to our care. They are people that belong to God, that have belonged to God much longer than they've been entrusted to our care. God has been alive and at work in their lives long before we were a part of the picture. And so the number one thing I have to recognize is is that I don't have followers. I have people that are already gods, and Mm -hmm. my job is to serve them. The second thing that I would argue is that my understanding of Christian leadership is very much shaped by a small little passage in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, it says, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now, we can agree of those three characters between Paul, Apollos, and God, that God did the most important work. So what does that leave us to do? That leaves us to do planting and watering. And I would argue that the essence of what it means to be a Christian leader is to do planting and watering. We can't force any kind of growth. My grandfather was what the Bible would call a steward. He managed a 140-acre citrus farm for an absentee landlord. So he didn't own anything, but he had a huge responsibility to bear fruit. And my question is, could he bear any fruit? Well, of course he couldn't. The trees bear fruit, but he couldn't make the trees do the thing that he wanted them to do. All he could do was to create an environment for growth and then turn them over to God. And I would argue that that is my mental model of leadership. All we can do is create an environment for growth and turn our people over to God. And when we recognize that it is not about us, these are people entrusted to my care, I need to become who they need me to be. So let me tell you one last story about that. God gave me daughters. I happen to live in a family of girls. I have two daughters, I have a wife, and I'm the only boy. Now, I love basketball. I've been playing basketball, well, up until COVID, I was playing basketball two, three times a week, even though I'm in my 50s. And I always dreamed of someday teaching my daughters to play. And it just so happens, I married a very tall woman. At 5'10", she is the shortest person in her family. So I was just all set to have tall daughters who I could teach basketball. And at about three years old, my daughters looked at their mommy and they looked at their daddy and said, mommy's way more interesting. And they're right. And they decided to be like mommy. And so what are they interested in? They're interested in fashion and cooking and science. And so they are both very interested in cooking and fashion. And one's a med student and the other is doing a PhD in physics. All of my interest in basketball out the window. So I had to become the father they needed. So I had to learn, for example, about fashion. I can now tell you what jewel tones are. I can talk about how a pencil skirt is different from a boyfriend jacket. I can talk about ruching. We had a very long conversation yesterday when we were talking to the girls about the amount of butter that you put into the thing that they were working on and so it doesn't become greasy. I mean, this is, I have to become conversant in that. I don't have any passion for it but I have a deep passion for my daughters. That's what it means to lead, is that you don't follow your own passions. You follow the passions of the people entrusted to your care. 
And that normally requires you to work on areas where you would never have expected that you had any interest. I had to learn fashion because that's what my kids like. I love that perspective on leadership that we are really caring for the people that are entrusted to us. One question, Scott, that I get quite a bit is what would you say is the key difference between spiritual or Christian leadership and corporate leadership? The question is, whose goals are we pursuing? One of the things that we have to recognize is that we cannot preach something on a Sunday or in your case, on Sabbath day, and then violate it on Tuesday night or whatever night we, however we have our church, whenever we have our church board meetings. However we lead must embody the results that we are after. And we don't get to name those results. My first job out of seminary or out of um, grad school was I taught at the Claremont School of Theology. But on the side, they asked me to teach at the Drucker Business School because of my nonprofits background. And so I had a bunch of MBA students. And their goal was the bottom line, was money. For us, the bottom line is faithfulness, to steal a line from Tom Jevons. And we don't get to define what faithfulness is. We serve a God who defines it. Everything we do, we do in God's name, imitating the Savior who prepared us. I think that brings me a lot of clarity on what's the motivation and why behind what you're doing. Scott, you just came out with a brand new book called The Innovative Church, and the tagline is how leaders and their congregations can adapt in an ever-changing world. I want to just read a small excerpt from your book and then just have you share a little overview of this brand new project that you're working with. And you share in your book, almost everything about the current experience of church was established in a bygone era. The way we worship, the passages of scripture we cherish, and the people we expect to see, the basic contours of church have not changed. Even as the world has been transformed, the church as we know it is calibrated for a world that no longer exists. Well, my basic work here starts by the fact that I spend all of my days working with Christian leaders who want to accomplish things in Jesus' name. And I realize that we live between two very different commitments. We have to be calibrated to two different things. If you're going to say that churches we know it is calibrated for a world that no longer exists, we have to be calibrated for the never-changing gospel, and we have to be calibrated for the ever-changing culture. The phrase that I use, the summary, the question that animates this entire book is, how do we maintain a rock-solid commitment to the unchanging Christian gospel, while at the same time create an entrepreneurial or innovative spirit for how to present that gospel to an ever-changing culture? The reason this came about is I would sit and talk to my students, and they would be wanting to use old answers to new questions, and they wouldn't work. And we know what the Bible says about old wine and new wineskins, or new wine and old wineskins. And so that's what started this project. But over and over again, I kept seeing churches that were talking as if it was 1972. And when you think about, in your book, you mentioned, you know, how churches and church leaders, we will label something innovative that really is not innovative When you think about that word innovative for church leaders, what does innovation mean to you? Sure. In the second chapter of the book, I go through a bunch of examples of what it would mean to be innovative. And it's ultimately this. We change the mental model of the people that are entrusted to our care so they see things 
from a greater perspective that looks like scripture. And so I'll give you a scriptural example. In the book of Mark, the book of Mark is constructed in such a way that the first eight chapters all lead to a high point. And then everything at that point pivots and everything moves towards the cross. And that high point is a conversation Jesus has at the end of Mark chapter 8 with the disciples about their mental models. He says, who do men say that I am? Or who do people say that I am? And they said, well, you think you're a prophet. That The mental model we use to make sense of you is you're a prophet. And Jesus says, well, okay. What about who do you say that I am? Well, you're a Messiah. Oh, they get a gold star. Absolutely. That doesn't last very long. Because then Jesus goes on to explain to them that the mental model they have of Messiah is wrong. They thought a Messiah was going to be a king like David, who would come in and sweep out the Romans, set up a real live palace with a real live throne room, with real live thrones, where Jesus would sit on big thrones and his disciples would get to sit on little thrones. And their mental model of a Messiah included little thrones for them. And Jesus instead says that the Messiah must suffer and die. And Peter doesn't take that very well. We all know about that. And Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And what's important about that is that he was changing their mental model of what it meant to be a Messiah, but he was also changing their mental model of what it meant to be the disciple of a Messiah. If you are the disciple of a Messiah who must suffer, then you yourself must suffer in just the exact same way. And they didn't get that when they were on the road to Jerusalem. They didn't get that when Jesus died. They didn't even get that when Jesus rose again. They only got it when the Spirit came to them at Pentecost. And they could say, oh, that's what Jesus was talking about. And when you think about that idea of changing somebody's mental model, it's challenging to change the way somebody thinks when they've been ingrained in a certain thought pattern for so long. Whether we've got leaders listening to the podcast who are in the corporate world or the church world, what's a basic, I guess, proven approach to begin that process of changing the way people think? So the first most important way to change the way other people think is to change the way you think. So the first work to be done is not on other people, it's on me. And the phrase that if if you've ever heard me speak, if you've ever heard anything you'll see in giant letters that I write wherever I can is leadership begins with listening. And the purpose of listening is for the listener to be transformed. So what I listen to is the longings and losses of the people entrusted to my care. I need to understand the things that keep my people awake at night. So often when we go to preach or teach or to try to change somebody else, we have a stereotypic understanding of them. Oh, they're a person. I'm a person. They must be like me. Or somebody taught me an answer to the key questions. I'm going to dump my answer on them. And it's very detached. It's almost rude in the ways in which we don't talk to people what's right in front of us. And so instead, I teach people to spend an enormous amount of time listening with empathy. When I say longings and losses of the people entrusted to your care, I'm thinking of the things that keep people awake at night. You know that moment when you go to sleep or when you go to lay down on your pillow and you haven't gone to sleep yet and all the things of the day come rushing in, the things that you long for. I wish I had had a better meeting with somebody or I wish I'm preparing for something for tomorrow or all these things or the losses. You know, I had this conversation with somebody, it didn't go well. And then you spend the next 15 minutes figuring out what you should have said, even though you'll never talk to that person about that again. Think about how you would be transformed if a, as a leader. If you knew the longings and losses, if you knew the things that kept your people awake at night, and then you could help them see 
their world through Jesus' eyes about those very things. Can I give you an example? Absolutely. So one of the things that I think we need to do is we need to learn to pray or we need to talk to God the way the Psalms talk to God. About 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. About half the Psalms are Psalms of praise. I would argue that any Christian service of worship should always have elements of lament and elements of worship. We should weep with those who weep. We should celebrate with those who celebrate. If I'm feeling like celebrating, I need to weep with my brothers and sisters. If I'm feeling like weeping, I need to celebrate with my brothers and sisters. But we need to do both. Yet if you were to ask people about the Psalms of Lament, they'd be a little puzzled by it. What what Psalms are those? Well, those are the ones they don't read in your church. Those are the ones that talk about John Goldengay is a professor here at Fuller, and he's probably one of the top five Old Testament scholars in the world. We can argue about who the top five are, but he's in it. And he describes the Psalms of Lament this way. It's when we shake our fist at God and say, God, you promised it wouldn't be this way. We're taught that it's rude or disrespectful to talk to God that way, except there's these, all these Psalms that are designed to teach us to talk this way. One of the key messages of the Psalms of Lament is that God can handle your honesty even and especially if you're angry at God. Let me give you an example. My favorite psalm is Psalm 139. You've searched me and know me, know me where I'm going out. We love that psalm. And it goes on for 18 verses about how wonderful God knows us. And then there's two verses that we skip. And then it says, search me, God, and know my heart. We skip those verses because we don't really want to pay attention to them, when in fact, they are the entire point of the psalm. What it says is the first 18 verses, you have searched me, you know me, so I might as well just be honest with you. Starting in verse 18, oh, that you would slay the wicked, and I have names for you. I want you to kill people for me, and then search me, O God, and know my heart. In other words, what it says is, God, you know me better than I know myself. I might as well be honest with you. I want you to kill some people for me. And then the last of it is, if that ain't right, fix me. I use that structure for praying to God all the time. God, you know me better than I know myself, so I'm going to be completely honest with you. I'm angry about this. I'm happy about this. I want you to do this. And then at the end of it, if that ain't right, fix me. That is the model of prayer and of speaking to God that the Psalms invite. And that kind of visceral honesty is just not present in our churches. That's a good example of what innovation would look like. We could rediscover something that was already there in our scripture. We didn't have to go out and invent it. It just had to be something that we could recover again. I I think a lot of us, we think, well, we can help shift other people's trains of thought, but it's a lot harder to do that for ourselves. Is that the starting point for a leader, a Christian leader, to be in that space where they're being brutally honest with God, lament and praise? Absolutely. Need to be brutally honest with God and lament and praise, but it's not enough. It means to do some brutally honest listening. Through the Fuller Youth Institute, we've had hundreds of congregational leaders come through what we call innovation summits, where we ask them to spend some time listening to their congregations, and then they come and we help them create innovation. And one of them, a woman named Erica in Florida, what she did is she realized that empathy is the key. I mean, this is something we teach. We teach a, you know, chapter three of my books all about developing empathy. And one of the things she went back and she decided to do empathy training for her people. And they came up with a great lesson. And it was this, never listen to a young person or somebody else in the faith without having a cup of water in front of you. And every time you want to say, yeah, but instead take a sip of water and say, tell me more. Mm. And the reason you do that 
is that most of us can't handle the brutal honesty of just listening to people's lives. And we want to interrupt them and say, yeah, but I want to feel what they're feeling and then be able to go to God and say, the current answer I have for this problem is not good enough. I need to go back to scripture, not because I need to solve my own problems, but because the people entrusted to my care deserve a better answer. And right now, I don't have a good answer for them. But I'm going to go back to scripture and specifically go back to the Christian practices to find Christian practices that will help me be able to answer their questions. So for leaders who are listening, the challenge that we need to redefine what listening actually is. And I'll just say that I don't think we listen very well. And I learned it from you, Scott, I'm pretty sure in one of the trainings we had with Fuller, where you brought up that phrase, tell me more. And I think that that phrase has been instrumental in my growth and practice of listening. And there's so many times when a young leader, a young person, or it could be a seasoned leader, they open the crack up in this door of conversation where you could lean in and they want to go deeper. But if you don't remember that challenge of tell me more, it can be so easy to just have this agenda in our conversation where we miss these moments to do that hard work of listening. So that phrase tell me more, has been instrumental for me in trying to listen better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I first heard that phrase from Kara Powell. Uh, it's just wonderful. A key to that idea is a phrase that we use that says, empathy cannot want control. If I'm sitting and listening to you empathetically, I can't be at the same time trying to figure out how to get you to do what I want you to do. It's too much of a mixed message. And so I have to give up my need for wanting you to be different. So if I'm sitting talking to a young person who I want to change their behavior and my agenda is to change their behavior, I will be a poor listener because I will be constantly trying to take the conversation where I want it to go rather than where they need it to go. And so I have to recognize that I have to put in an enormous amount of time of listening with no agenda other than to listen before I have, it's my turn to speak, before I have the credibility to be able to say to them, okay, now that I've listened to you, I've got some things that I'd like to do. And that takes far longer. I mean, as a dad, that was a really hard thing for me. I'd be listening to my daughters and I would want to say, no, no, I want your behavior to be different. And that's my agenda in this conversation. And I had to put that aside and get better at saying, I just want to understand them. I just want to understand them. Because until I understand them, I'm going to offer them a stereotypic or prepackaged answer that really won't address what they're dealing with. Scott, this is so good. I'm just thinking about how many times I've listened to either team members or individuals. And you may have shared this earlier as well, but I'm listening and I'm ready to respond instead of listening to actually understand. And I think that's a key. That's so key as you talked about the conversations with your daughters, that your goal as a leader listener is to understand the person that is a team member or the person you're having a conversation with. That's hard. It is hard for us in a conversation to yield up control because we want to guide the journey of the conversation. But how key is that to just say, I'm going to let you guide this conversation. I'm going to let you share what you want to share. I'm going to let you bring up your dreams or the disappointments that you have in your life. And I'm going to listen again to understand. I think that's huge. Scott, let me ask you this. 
if you're a leader, I would imagine that there are two environments where you would do some listening on a regular basis. One may be listening with a team or one could be listening to individuals. Can you give us a few suggestions if somebody is approaching a team or an individual, what are some of those key questions to get conversations going where you really want to have those honest listening moments? So I rarely do listening in teams. It's too intimidating because oftentimes what will happen is a group of authority figures will gather together and then put somebody in the middle of them and say, tell us stuff. That's not safe. That's just not safe. We could have the best intentions in mind, but they've been burned too many times by too many other people who look like us. So I suggest that if you have a team that's interested, what gets measured gets done. And so what you do is you say, okay, as a team, each of you is responsible for listening to three people this week. And then a week from now, when we get together, we're going to go around the room and say, who did you listen to? Mm. And what did you hear? And so you do that the first time and everybody goes, well, I kind of got busy, you know, and then you keep doing it. And after the seventh, eighth, 10th, 12th time, it becomes a habit, but it takes a very long time. But when I listen to people, here's the thing. I will tell people that I am interested in something on which you are the world's leading authority. Because if I turn to you, you are the world's leading authority on your own opinions, on your own experience. So I just get you talking about how do you spend your days? I send my students out to do a listening project. They interview somebody who's got a job. And they just simply say, talk to me about your job. And they start asking them questions about, tell me a story, what happens. And then as they bring up coworkers, as they bring up, we ask, what do you do for lunch? And they'll say, I eat at my desk by myself. Was that lonely? Or what do you do? Where do you go? Just getting them talking about what they love. Pretty soon you'll begin to hear things that this person comes up at again. Or, you know, there's a note of affection when they mention this person. Or there's a little bit of a, of a note of a difficulty when they mention, you know. And then you can say, oh, tell me more about that person. Tell me more about the, it very open-ended. But the fact that I just keep listening allows them to go wherever they need to go. I think that's key. And that really just expanded for me the need to create those safe spaces almost always you're saying that's going to happen in a one-on-one because that's so much safer than doing that in a room. And if I'm honest, when you said that, I thought back to my own journey. How many times did I try to do brutally honest and hopeful listening in a group setting and it was not really effective? And until you shared that, all of a sudden the lights went off to say, well, it's not a safe space. And Benjamin, you should have known that. But you're right, creating those safe spaces usually the most effective in a one-on-one context where you can begin to ask people about what they are an authority on, which is their own life and their opinions and what they're going through. I, I absolutely love that. And I also love the challenge to leaders that you can't be the only listening voice in your church or organization. If you want to be able to multiply that listening experience for the people entrusted in your care, as you said earlier in the episode, you have to entrust people and empower them to go out and listen to the people that you are trying to care for. Amen. Amen. And it's only going to happen intentionally because the thing that prevents it is what we would call the daily, or the, the hungry beast of daily duties. And the hungry beast of daily duties gets in the way and gobbles up all of our best intentions. Scott, the book, The Innovative Church, incredible book. 
who would you say this book is really written for? Who's going to resonate with this book the most? I think there are a lot of listeners to Rise and Lead that are in the corporate space. Is there value for corporate leaders in what they can learn from the innovative church? Anybody who has people entrusted to their care. I have a version of this that I did for a Fuller magazine where we talked about people who are working in the corporate world. And I said, you have people entrusted to your care and you need to pay attention to their longings and losses. I was doing this with a group of Bible study that uh, I was visiting in Silicon Valley of people who are all high-powered executives in Silicon Valley. And one of them, who was the uh, chief legal counsel for a internet firm, turned to me and said, wait a second, you're telling me I need to care about people's personal lives? And I said, yeah. And we talked about that. He didn't really believe it. Well, about a month later, a book came out called Radical Candor. I recommend the book, written by a secular author who works in Silicon Valley. She's the one that created the management training for Apple and for Google. So she does an enormous amount of training of secular leaders. And I can summarize her entire book in four words. The work that you do as a manager is this, care personally, challenge directly. And you're not allowed to challenge directly until you've cared personally. And so here she is as a secular author coming to the very same conclusions that I'm coming to as a Christian saying these are deeply Christian points. Yet when I talk to Christian leaders who are out there in the world, they're like, I don't know if I can do this. Let me give you another example. Max Dupree, there's a business hall of fame and Max is in it. He was the head of Herman Miller Company. They make air on chairs, that kind of thing. Their company was one of the first ones that was ever named as one of the best companies in the country to work for. I, I think I've been told, I don't know for sure, but I've been told that eventually they were asked not to participate in that anymore because they had won the, the award so many years in a row as best wow. company that they just want to give somebody else a chance for a while. And Max would describe his leadership style as this. I announce my values and then I give my people what they need to hold my feet to the fire to say that our Mm. organization embodies those values. Normally what leaders do is they announce their values and then they put in place things where they can hold their people's feet to the fire to require them to do the things that they want them to do. No, it's just the opposite. He would give his people the authority to be able to hold his feet to the fire Because he says, if I can embody my values, and if I can get my corporation to embody my values, then we can get this work done. Now, what happens if you're not CEO? Well, Jim Collins likes to talk about pockets of greatness. Where do you have authority? Is it your group of three people? Is it just within your cubicle? Who are the people that are entrusted to your care? And how do you create a pocket of greatness that embodies this kind of care and love and the gospel for those people? Create a pocket of greatness for whatever you're authorized to do. Scott, when you think about the current climate of leadership right now, whether it's with corona, racial tension around the country, politics, what would you say are the highest priorities for leaders right now in the current climate that we're in? It's a great question. I don't have a systematic answer. I will give you a bunch of pieces of things that I think are important. When I sit with CEOs, when I sit at presidents of nonprofits, these are the kinds of things that I talk about. So one of the first questions I ask a CEO or somebody who's in, who has large amounts of power is I say to them, who in your life has the authority to tell you you're wrong and you'll believe them? And oftentimes they'll say, oh, everybody wants to tell me I'm wrong. I said, yeah, yeah, I understand that everybody, 
But who, if they just came to you and said, I think you're making a mistake, you would immediately say either we're going to rethink this or I've got to take this very seriously and it's likely I'm going to do something different. They look at me puzzled because they think so much of having power is about exercising power. And it creates these enormous blind spots. So one of the things that I'm looking for in a leader is somebody who will surround themselves with people who will give them alternative perspectives, and then they will be able to embrace that. So one of the key things I teach my students is to be able to, the best leaders are able to be wrong in public. Because you have two choices if you're not able to be wrong in public. You can either never be wrong, or you can never be in public. And most leaders I know are desperately afraid of being wrong in public. And so this particular climate will penalize you for being wrong in public so people won't admit it. And we choose for ourselves leaders who are desperate to be able to try and convince us that it wasn't their fault. One of the best scholars on leadership is a guy named Jim Collins who writes about what he calls the mirror in the window. The best leaders take responsibility for mistakes. They treat it like a mirror and say, I'll take responsibility. And they treat praise like a window that passes right through them to others. Mm. The worst leaders are those who say, I will blame everybody else who thinks that whenever I'm responsible for something, and they will take credit for things that are not theirs. So I don't want to try to get into anything about that could be considered political, but those are the kinds of answers that I've been given for 10 years to leaders who ask those kinds of questions, especially when I'm talking to presidents, CEOs, that kind of thing. Whether it's this year or any other, such a high priority for leaders to surround themselves with a team that can really hold their feet to the fire. So this is nothing new, such an essential part of, hey, if you're a leader right now, if you have that in place, then grow it to the next level. If you don't have that team around you and you haven't given your people permission to hold your feet to the fire, now is the time to begin to build that group around you. And would you say, what percentage, Scott, would you say of leaders actually have that team around them where they can be challenged in that way? Building the team is not nearly as hard as listening to them. I mean, I think lots of leaders have the team around. I think lots of leaders like to pretend that they listen to their people. One of the things that I teach goes back to, I mentioned Chris Argerus very early in this. Argerus has done this wonderful work where he talks about mixed messages. He says, mixed messages cause chaos. If you want chaos in your organization, all you have to do is four easy steps. Send a mixed message, pretend it isn't mixed, make the mixedness undiscussable, and make the undiscussability undiscussable. Wow. Now, I pause there normally when I'm talking to an audience because post-traumatic stress disorder kicks in because people are going, oh, I'm sure. Most of us, when we have competing commitments, treat them like mixed messages because we don't want to have to choose. Most leaders that I know live in a world filled with competing commitments. And the last thing they want to do is to face those competing commitments. And so what they do is they send mixed messages that say, I want to listen to you so long as you don't tell me something I don't want to hear. I want to listen to you and I will penalize you if you say something that makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh, and so what happens is, is that, that there's lots of people around our leaders that are constantly giving them information that they need, and most of them are feeling very uncomfortable in listening to them. One of the churches that I worked with, I remember one time, they decided that just to take that one lesson about mixed messages, and they took it to their staff meeting. It's a very large church, 
and it had an executive pastor and five or six associate pastors, each of which controlled a department. And they realized that their entire staff meeting was built around one mixed message. And the mixed message was this. Each of our ministries is equally important, and each of you should really flex to my ministry. We are all equal, and I'm first among equals. And it was all this debate. And so they spent five months, five full months debating. And every time they would have a staff meeting each week, they would say, okay, where are the mixed messages? And they would root them out, and they would root them out until they finally got to the point where they felt like they had completely reinvented what it meant to be a staff just by talking honestly about the mixed messages amongst them. That takes a leader who has a tremendous healthy ego that you don't need to feed their ego. An unhealthy ego is a large ego that is based on insecurity. A healthy ego is often an ego that is very confident, but is not needing to be able to proclaim that to everybody else. You need to be able to have a healthy enough ego that you don't need other people to say how great you are. You need it grounded in your relationship with Jesus. You may have answered it right there, but I was going to come back and ask you, what is the foundation of a healthy ego? And you just mentioned the relationship with Jesus, the identity of who you are in Jesus. Anything you'd add to that? The hardest thing for me has been when I look at my own life, there are lots of places where I messed up and bad things happened to my organization. And I wanted desperately to pretend that it wasn't my fault. The greatest growing I've done as a leader is when I faced those things and learned them. And I learned that ultimately, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, it's not about me. We hold this treasure in earthen vessels. I am a cracked clay pot. And the thing that I hold is wonderful. And I want desperately to pretend that I'm not cracked or clay. And the more that I understand that what is inside is more important than what's on the outside, that what that the treasure that is held, what God is doing in the world, God can do regardless of how cracked I am. It takes the pressure off of me to pretend to be more than I really am. That is excellent. And if somebody was listening and just received that little nugget, I think this whole episode would be worth it for sure. And there's a lot of reflection that we could do personally on what is the foundation of our ego and what are the roots that we have with our ego and where are those roots anchored? Scott, you speak a lot. You do a lot of leadership consulting and coaching. You work with students, corporate leaders, church leaders. Is there a question that you often wish people would ask you about leadership that they don't ask you? Or is there any question you wish you could dive into that you haven't had the chance to do when you're either in front of a classroom or a room of leaders? One of the key questions, I I cover this in chapter eight of my book, is the difference between management and leadership. We don't really think of that very often. Management helps people take the next step on the path they're already on. Leadership helps them take first step on a new path. And they take completely different methodologies. And the big problem is, is that often we treat leadership as if it's another management problem. For management, you can do a lot of planning. You can have a very predictable kind of an outcome, all these things that we can control. Most of the stuff that happens in leadership, we can't control. 
And so what do we do? We have to develop a tremendous agility and we have to create an environment for growth. And then we have to respond to what we see it's in front of us. It's a very different process. And so that's why chapter eight exists is to explain that different process. But I think one of the key mistakes that people often make is that they use management means to leadership ends. Mm. Scott, if you were to think about people listening to this episode who had a real desire to lead better, what would you suggest on a practical level that somebody could do in the next 24 hours to take a step on that journey or pursuit of being a better leader? Well, I'm biased. So, I mean, I took all the stuff that I had answered to that and I put it in a book. So, I mean, literally, this is all my lectures from what I lecture on that topic. So, I guess I'm going to have to sound like that guy and say, buy my book, which kind of feels a little weird. I was going to go there anyway. So, you could be that guy or I was going to be that guy or I'll probably be that guy anyway. But the other thing that I would say is if you're going to embrace your weakness, if you're going to find what you're not good at and get better at it, get yourself a mentor in that area. So for example, I'll give you an example in my own life. Most leaders you know are really either good at tasks or good at people, but most people aren't good at both. When I was a beginning level professor, I was very, very good at the task part and not great at the people part. And I hired an administrative assistant. It happened to be somebody who had been a former pastor whose daughter was sick and she wanted to be able to just simply have a job while her kid was in school. So her daughter would experience her as a stay-at-home mom. And I immediately looked at my ministry assistant and I said, oh my goodness, she is really gifted at this relational stuff that I'm not. And so I said to her, I want you to be my relational mentor. Every time we came back from a meeting, we would then debrief the meeting. What did she see that I didn't see? What did I see that she, that I got wrong? What are, what are things that I said that I intended to mean this, but she says, no, I actually had this result, all this kind of stuff. It was almost like after a game when you sit with a coach and they go over the film. And here she was technically working for me, but I gave her that authority. And that was 22 years ago. And we still talk once a week because I need that voice in my life and she needs my experience on organizations in in her life. So find people who are good at what you're not and give them the authority to make you better. How would Scott Cormode define a great leader? One of the key questions that I ask all the time is, how do you help people change who desperately need to change and desperately don't want to change? That is the essence of leadership, is to be able to help people change who desperately need to change and desperately don't want to change. Mm -hmm. And it requires building this kind of specific kind of environment. And that, to me, is the essence of leadership. Scott, it's been a true honor. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Rise and Lead. I'm going to go ahead and put the plug in, even though you shared about it earlier. If you're in the corporate world, if you're in the church world, if you're leading at home, whatever your platform is, get a copy of The Innovative Church. I've read it. It's incredible. You're going to have to go through the content a few times, I think, to digest all the nuggets and the value that's in the book. But Scott, thank you for taking all the lectures, what you have learned and packaging that in a way that can be distributed to leaders in our country and globally. So grab your copy of The Innovative Church. Scott, it's a pleasure. Thank you again so much. I know this episode is going to bring so much value to our listeners. And thanks again for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
I hope this episode with Scott has impacted you. Send me a DM and let me know. I read every message that comes in. Make sure you screenshot this episode and share it with someone and post it to your social media accounts. Make sure you tag me so I can give you a repost. And thanks again for leaving a rating and review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe. Look for new episodes to drop every month. You won't want to miss those. Thank you for taking the time to invest in yourself. You are worth it. Remember, the best time to rise and lead is now.